This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today we begin a short series of episodes on reproduction, contraception, and abortion in American history. This episode focuses on the case of the abortion and death of Sarah Grosvenor in Pomfret, Connecticut in 1742. The legal case brought against the physician who performed the abortion was unusual for many reasons that I will discuss with today's guest. As a word of warning, this introduction does depict an abortion. If you'd like to avoid it, I would recommend skipping forward about five minutes. Sarah Grosvenor was born on June 1, 1723, to Captain Lester Grosvenor a son of one of the six original landowners in the area. When Pomfret became a town in 1714, Captain Lester Grosvenor was elected selectman, and he was re-elected to 19 one-year terms. In 1742, Sarah, age 19, was living with her father, her stepmother Rebecca, and her older sister, Zerviah, who was 21 at the time. At some point, Sarah began a relationship with Amasa Sessions, the 27-year-old son of Lieutenant Nathaniel Sessions, another prominent resident of Pomfret. Around May of 1742, Sarah realized that she was pregnant and alerted Amasa. For unknown reasons, Amasa was reluctant to marry Sarah. On paper, they appear to have been a good match, both children of leading families in the region. As I'll discuss with the guests later, it would not have been unusual for a couple at the time to become pregnant first and then marry. But for whatever reason, Amasa pressured Sarah to take a powdered abortifacient. In Pomfret lingo, this was called taking the trade. There were various recipes for abortifacients. We don't know what was in the powder that Sarah took. It may have been made of herbs like savin or pennyroyal. According to later testimony, Sarah was loath to take the trade and, quote, thought it evil, unquote. It appears she may not have taken all of the doses that Amasa brought to her. Whether for that reason, or because it was an ineffective remedy to begin with, the concoction prescribed by the physician John Hallowell did not work to end the pregnancy. Although John Hallowell called himself a physician, it's unlikely that he had any college or apprenticeship training. That wouldn't have been unusual for the time. 
and even college-trained doctors didn't have today's medicines or knowledge of germ theory. In July, after possibly eight weeks of taking the trade, Sarah became ill. She eventually admitted to her sister that she was pregnant and had been taking the trade. On July 24th, upon Zervaya's urging, Amasa reluctantly confirmed that the child was his, and he agreed to marry Sarah. However, for whatever reason, the marriage bans were never posted. And on July 30th, Amasa visited Sarah and gave her more of the powdered abortifacient to take. On August 2nd, Sarah came to her cousin John's house, summoned there by physician Hallowell, where he unsuccessfully attempted a manual abortion, using an instrument of some kind. According to later testimony by a friend of Sarah's, to whom Sarah had confided, physician Hallowell tried for some time to remove the fetus, putting Sarah in, quote, utmost distress, unquote. Physician Hallowell was unsuccessful in removing the fetus. But two days later, back at her parents' house, Sarah miscarried. Servaya and their cousin-in-law, Hannah, helped Sarah to bed and then wrapped the fetus and buried it in the woods in order to keep the situation private and apparently secret from the elders. For about ten days, everything was fine and Sarah was comfortably doing her tasks at home. However, on August 14th, Sarah suddenly developed a terrible fever and violent pains. As she grew weak, her parents consulted college-educated physicians. Hallowell visited as well. Nothing helped, and on September 14th, Sarah Grosvenor died. If that had been the end of the story, the entire situation may have been lost to history. But curiously, three years later, two magistrates in Wyndham County started an investigation into Sarah's death. In March 1747, the king's attorney brought charges against both physician Hallowell and Amasa Sessions to a grand jury. The grand jury rejected the case against Sessions, but endorsed the case against Hallowell, who was eventually found guilty. He was sentenced to be paraded to the town gallows, where he would stand for two hours, quote, with a rope visibly hanging about his neck, unquote, and then be whipped with 29 lashes. Rather than face the punishment, Hallowell fled. What we know about the pregnancy and death of Sarah Grosvenor came from the depositions in the trial. Joining me now to help us understand more about this case and its historical context is Dr. Cornelia Hughes-Dayton, Professor of History at the University of Connecticut and author of the 1991 article, Taking the Trade, Abortion and Gender Relations in an 18th-Century New England Village. 
and co-creator of the Taking the Trade website. Hello, Nina. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here, Kelly. I know this is a weird thing, probably, to go back to a piece that you wrote three decades ago. But I want to hear a little bit about how uh, way back then in 1991, you first came to write this piece, Uh, you know, sort of what what sort of inspired you? Right. Well, this article, Taking the Trade, came out of my dissertation research. And in essence, I had uh, just going through almost all the court records in two ways for Connecticut, tracking when women came to court and for what sorts of cases and what were the patterns and how did their um, participation in litigation and as witnesses compare to men's. And this case was like a one-off case, we might call, you know, a sui generis. (laughs) There wasn't anything else like it. And so it became an article instead of a book chapter, because my book chapters were about areas of the law where there were lots of cases, debt, divorce, slander, premarital sex. So what's extraordinary about this case is that it's a, for the 18th century, very well-documented case in which we learn that a young woman was given a powder as an abortifacient, and then when that didn't work, the doctor consulting with her gave her a manual operation. Um, And we don't really have any other examples of this where they're witnesses and depositions. So then let's talk a little bit about the the court records and, and how you went about researching for this piece. Talk to me about kind of what, what those court records look like, what sorts of things you're able to get out of them. Yeah, so if we were able to go to the Connecticut State Archives together, the court records, uh, for the most part, consist of big folio leather-bound books, which are the record books, and just summarize the cases that come before a court each term. And this case came before the Superior Court or the Appellate Court of of Colonial Connecticut, and it probably had just like a one-paragraph summary uh, of the the eventual trial. Um, but the the real key for a historian to be able to write in some and research in some depth is whether there are loose papers or file papers that go along with that one record. And fortunately for Connecticut, um, because there were not major fires or wars that uh, destroyed court records, as there have been in Virginia and many other states, those file papers uh, survive in extraordinary volume. Um, and so that means that if the lawyers uh, or the prosecutors uh, called witnesses, um, especially those who were might have been ill at the time or lived more than 20 miles from the courthouse, they gave a written deposition to a justice of the peace, and those were forwarded <laughs> to the to the judges who read them. Um, and that's what remains in the files. So unlike a modern case, we don't have a judicial opinion handed down. We don't have briefs from the lawyers, but we do have these surviving witnesses or depositions. Um, And they can tell us a great deal about what neighbors and people kind of adjacent to the main principal did and and thought. Uh, And that's what we have in this case. So it's those file papers that when you get to the archives, you're literally unfolding them. They're folded in trifold bundles the way they were in the 18th century and tied with ribbons 
for for each court session. And so you unfold those and get to read them or take notes on them. Or these days you can take pictures on them. Yeah. <laughs> so I this is one of the earliest events in history that I have done an episode on. So I really want to help listeners. This is great, this talking about sort of unfolding the papers and stuff. I want to help listeners understand sort of the the experience of reading those documents because they're not typewritten, right? Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. they're uh, the language has changed over time. Like, what what are the challenges that you as a historian face in looking at these? Right. I mean, you do have to get used to the handwriting, and I feel fortunate that I mostly studied the 18th century, and it's what we would think of as a cursive uh, script. Mm. Um, and so I'm. Because I've done this now for decades, I'm pretty good at doing it. You know, I see my undergraduate students confronting this, and that sometimes I bring to class um, photocopies or, or scans of these documents, and and um, students actually really enjoy trying to transcribe. Um, but when you're doing it the first time, you hesitate and you leave a lot of blanks, and you have to kind of get used to the person's handwriting. My colleagues who work on 17th century Ireland or France or, you know, have much greater handwriting and and language issues. So I do feel fortunate. And we we do find that the court clerks who who were taking, and the justice of the peace who were uh, writing these documents, their handwriting differs, right? So some it's quite easy and some it's phonetic. So there's that handwriting issue. then I also think as a legal historian, I've had to learn what are the formats, right? You yeah. know, how how do people approach each type of document? Um, because a lot of these documents, even though they're handwritten, they're quite formulaic. So you learn after reading lots of them, what's the formula? You know, it, it, it's no longer surprising to me that if someone is indicted for murder or uh, a serious felony, the language was instigated by fear of the devil, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that's just totally boilerplate. So you have to learn to skip, sort of skip over that, not put a lot of emphasis on it, and and find the idiosyncratic evidence that is unique to that case. And, and I feel, as do other scholars, that we're, we're often getting at people's what I would say vernacular voices in these depositions because they're you know Sarah's neighbors um, and they're not elites necessarily and they're not famous people who's like the presidents whose letters have been preserved um, and so we can get a sense maybe of how they spoke the language they used sometimes it, you have to ask other 18th century specials, what do you think they meant by this? Um, <laughs> or use a slang dictionary? Or um, That is to say that we interpret these depositions and literally. You also have to think, as I tried to do in the article about this abortion case, how witnesses tried to kind of frame or make themselves mm-hmm. appear as if they had been you know, morally upright and good people. And then the lawyers are asking questions and, and generating these depositions. And even though we don't see their questions, you can kind of figure out what they're asking. Mm. 
You know, I uh, have been telling my kids, my kids are 10 and 8, and uh, they don't know cursive. And so I've been telling them, if you want to be historians, you Uh-oh. need to learn cursive. <laughs> yes, right. that's apparently not a thing that they teach anymore. <laughs> yes, right. I've heard this too. Yeah. So then uh, let's talk some about the the case itself. And I want to start with that, the language piece, because the, the title of uh, the article on the website is Taking the Trade. And so let's talk some about what 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 that phrase meant and why why it's significant that there even was a phrase for what is happening. Yes, I do think this is one of those extraordinary or un- unusual cases where I found um, basically a local terminology that we hadn't found anywhere else. So if you look trade, T-R-A-D-E, up in an 18th century dictionary, one meaning, like the third or fourth on the list, is something like, I haven't done this for a while, but rubbish. That seems to be the closest to to how people in Pomfret, Connecticut uh, were using it. Uh, but they were using it more specifically as a, something you would take, a medical substance. In this case, the doctor giving it to Sarah, we don't know what it consisted of. It might have been compounds or herbal of herbs like Sabin or Pennyroyal, which you know women had known for centuries could could help restore a woman's menstruation or lead to a miscarriage or abortion. So we don't know what it was, but what's extraordinary is the young people called it the trade, and they referred to her as taking the trade, and that really is an expression that we had never seen before and, and not, not necessarily seen again. Um, in modern lingo, it has other meanings. So it has an interesting linguistic history um, with different meanings. But this one was quite specific to the situation I just described. Yeah. And it seems like they all knew that. Like it, it wasn't a, you know, somebody said that, you know, somebody else mm-hmm. said, what the heck do you mean by that? Like this mm-hmm. was a, a well-known phrase, at least in this particular region. Yeah, and what I use the depositions for is to partly um, get at youth culture at this time period, because one of the interesting things that developed here is that these young people, I'm now forgetting their ages, but Sarah was maybe 19 and her lover Amasa Sessions was maybe, you know, young 20s, and the young women around her were teenagers or 20-somethings. So these youths use this expression uh, familiarly, as you just said, and they were trying to keep it a secret from her parents. And they seem to have succeeded in that, which also seems amazing, keeping the fact of her pregnancy, that Amasa wouldn't marry her, and that she that she was, as the young woman later said, he was pressuring her to take this abortifacient, although she, her friend said later, um, hesitated. Mm-hmm. Wish we had Sarah's diary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, you mentioned that this is such a unique case. Is it unique that there even was a case? Is it unique that we have so much uh, information from it? You know, what put this in the larger perspective of what life was like in 18th century Connecticut or 18th century colonies? Yes, the fact that an attempt was made to deliberately end a pregnancy 
both through a, a powder and then through an operation. That That's quite extraordinary for us to know about it. What is quite common about Sarah's case is that she had sex and got pregnant before she married. Um, so we, we pretty much know from birth and marriage records that a third of all couples in settler New England were, as we put it, pregnant before they married. So their child was born you know, within seven months of the marriage. Mm. So this, the, w- what I'm saying is that the premarital sex was widespread. And of course, the ministers, the congregational Puritan ministers didn't approve, and they gave sermons arguing that, that young people shouldn't do this. But it really was a widespread phenomenon in, in Europe. Um, Julie Hardwick, a professor of history at UT Austin, has written a wonderful book about Lyon, France, uh, which is a, a kind of another regime, but young people, um, lots of young people were having relationships and sex before, and were not able to marry. Or, and so it's not just in in Connecticut. But um, what's what we don't understand is why these two young people didn't marry. The normal thing would have been for them to get married, and the pregnancy sort of pushes them to set a date. And and so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of couples. That's how that's how their marriage came about. These these two people were of the same upper middle class standing, so it's hard to understand from that point of view why it seems that Amasa decided not to marry Sarah, and this is why they begin to keep it a secret, um, seek out a somewhat shady physician, John Hallowell, who who provides the both the powder aborted, the abortifacient that they call the trade, and then performs a, a manual operation that leads to Sarah miscarrying the fetus a few days later and then dying, we assume, of sepsis of infection on September 14th in 1742. So what was the actual crime that was being charged here? Right. So one interesting thing about the legal story here is that Sarah died, as I said, in 1742, and it wasn't until three years later the prosecutors in Wyndham County started to bring charges. And so why that three-year gap? There's an intriguing paragraph in a local by a local early 20th century historian of the county that, that says oral tales circulated that Sarah's sister was haunted by Sarah's ghost, who was asking Servia to the sister to to see that justice be brought about. So who who knows? What, you know, the young women who who survived Sarah um, seem to have felt felt haunted, perhaps. But anyway, there was a three year gap, and then the prosecutors start to try to to try the case. But they have to go through three or four attempts before a grand jury will accept the bill of indictment that they bring to them. And so in the end, they only indict the, the doctor, which in a way makes sense because he's the one who performed the operation, John Hallowell. And interestingly, they, they do not indict him for murder or for a felony, but for what they call a high-handed misdemeanor of contriving and by actual force and violence attempting and endeavoring attempting basically to 
injure the health and soundness of Sarah and to destroy the fruit of her womb and to destroy and cause it to perish. So they're they're indicting him for endangering her health. And of course, they don't say so, but she died after after this happened. And as they put it, the fruit of her womb. And the last important point to make is that this was after she had experienced quickening, which is usually in the fourth or fifth month when the mother feels the fetus moving inside of her. So presumably, since everyone knew this phrase, taking the trade, and there was a doctor willing to perform manual abortion, this must not be the only case of these things Mm -hmm. happening. But other cases don't, you know, don't seem Mm -hmm. to have gone to trial. Does it seem like what is the problem here is because it's so far along in the pregnancy? Is it because she died? Like what? Why is it Mm -hmm. that this case is treated differently? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure we can be certain. Uh, and and you're right. I was just looking at my notes, you know, because after I wrote the and published the piece, I, I wanted to know: Do we have other cases? And there, if we do, they're very fragmentary. Where a court and and we don't know if it was before quickening. We don't know if it was an operation. Usually, it's just attempting to use an abortifacient to stop a pregnancy. So. I mean, here I agree that the mother died, and that seemed to have really jarred everyone and brought it to the attention of the authorities, although late, we don't know why. Her father actually was a justice of the peace, and he was in his 70s, so he he was married when this happened to a second wife, and and so we're not really sure. She kept it a secret from him. Mm-hmm. You know, was he a man with a terrible temper? I mean, we just we just don't know why. And you would think that if he was the moving force behind the prosecution, it would have been more immediate. Yeah. So so there are real mysteries there. But I think the one point that's important to make is that this case shows us what the few other abortion prosecutions that we can find in England or British America at this time show, which is that the, pro- the prosecution, they're very rare, but they're not for murder. They're not at the, mel- the the felony level. They're at the next level down, a misdemeanor. And that's basically what the common law treatises in, in England that, that American lawyers would have consulted would say, that this should be treated as a misdemeanor. One of the reasons, of course, that we're thinking about this now and <laughs> looking at this case again and presumably something that you wouldn't have been able to predict 30 years ago when you wrote this, is that it's relevant to a recent Supreme Court decision uh, in the Dobbs decision, uh, where they actually referenced the history and you know what, what it might have been like in colonial America as the framers were writing the Constitution. Can you talk some uh, to that point about how this case doesn't necessarily support that mm-hmm. idea of of what was put in the Dobbs decision, right? Well, the Alito opinion, as as many as several historians and very good op eds have pointed out, gets the history wrong and deliberately, I suspect. So, the key legal situation at the time of the revolution, or in the seventeen forties, as we, at the case we've been discussing, was that in English law. If a woman attempted to stop a pregnancy before quickening, um, before she felt the fetus move, 
was not illegal in any way. It was not criminalized. It was it was not illegal. And, and social historians would argue it was tolerated. But Alito's opinion kind of elides that, slips over that. Mm-hmm. And the second point that historians make that's effective is that when individual states, starting with Connecticut, actually, in 1821, began to pass statutes addressing abortion, they really were aimed at protecting young women, uh, young mothers, and uh, uh, from medical malpractice, from, from harm. We also don't have any legislative debate about them or any lobbying, so we're not really sure they were tacked on to other to revision of the cr- criminal code. So we're mm. so we don't really have testimony about well, public opinion, uh, etc. Yeah. And at the same time, in the 19th century, if we looked at the newspapers of New York City, they're full of kind of coded ads for potions you can take to to restore your menstruation, and that's kind of um, mixed bag for us looking back because um, people at this time really thought if a woman's menstruation stopped, not because she was pregnant, then it was really unhealthy for her and she Mm. should do what she could to restore it. So those ads can be read two ways, right? One as a coded message that here's something you can take uh, perhaps to uh, stop a pregnancy, um, but they also are, uh, were interpreted really as a way to restore your health. But the point is that the people, as as you pointed out, sort of knew about the possibility of ending pregnancies and thought they had some ways of doing it. We're uncertain about how effective those potions were and when they when they were effective. It's, it's hard to know. Yeah. One of the things uh, that you have also done, uh, besides just writing this journal article, is to put these materials up on uh, on a website. Can you talk some about that and sort of that that public history piece of it? It's an incredible resource, so I'll put it in the show notes so people can look at it too. But sort of the the reasons behind doing that, and you know what what we're able to get from putting resources like that up. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, I keep meaning to kind of up, update and <laughs> work on it some more. But I guess I'm a big believer in making the original documents public for something <laughs> that that will be of interest. So, and something that's ex- sort of extraordinary like this, unusual, right? There aren't lots and lots of other documents like this. Um, and I believe that um, either readers of my article should be able to take issue with me or see things that I didn't see. Of course, I poured over those those documents over and over again, but there were perhaps leads I didn't follow or things I didn't understand at the time. So I, I think of it as having more life and continuity and a continuing conversation if people can both look at the original documents and then some of the supporting materials, you know, that are re- me, the researcher, created, like cast of characters can be mm-hmm. complicated if you're reading these for the first time, the timelines, that, that can be helpful. The piece has been used a lot in teaching at the college level. So that I, that's it grew out of my friend Woody Holton, who then taught at the University of Richmond. He wanted he wanted to create a, a site to to kind of frame the article for students. So that's so we collaborated on it. And then Jessica Linker, now a professor at Northeastern, um, designed it for me. So I'd like it's something I'd like to work on over the next year and um, update and refresh a bit and see if we can add a bit more 
ideas for lesson plans and and materials that have come to light since the 1991 article. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I uh, as I was looking at the timeline and the the cast of characters, I was like, I wish every history book and every history article <laughs> <Yes>. had this. <laughs> yes. Sometimes I think that's how we should think of our projects. You know, if we can, the 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 digital, the web component. Yeah, yeah, I love it, and it, it was such an early example of that. I'm, you know, as you said, it. Your friend first worked on it. I think it was like 2001. 2001 so that's right, very, exactly. very early in uh, <laughs> in the web. And then you created these pages in 2007. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I, I mm-hmm. hope we're going to see more and more of this because I think it's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. helpful. I wanted to ask too, you mentioned earlier that one of the things you're trying to do in this piece is sort of get at the way uh, youth culture, at the way that the young people talk and, and act and, and react in in relationship to the, the sort of older people. And you've done that. You've looked at that sort of language uh, in other times too, that, that you're you know sort of looking at what, what were real people doing mm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. history. I wonder if you could talk about that and the you know that's sort of the the theme of this podcast in a way is sort of you know what was everyone else doing besides the you know presidents that mm-hmm. you hear about all the time so i wonder if you could talk about that and the importance of doing that research and kind of how how you go about trying to to get at real people's experiences <laughs> well i mean on on one aspect of that might be sort of the history of sex right i mean that the most prosecuted crime in these New England colonies was what they called fornication or premarital sex. Um, and in essence, the young people uh, or young couples uh, prosecuted for this came into court and were sort of slapped on the wrist. I mean, they were fined. In the 17th century, you might be whipped if you couldn't come up with your 40 shilling fine. But it, it's a pretty minor but very frequent prosecution. Um, and, you know, undergrad students are sometimes surprised at the testimony that sometimes comes up more likely in a in a prosecution for adultery say where where the where the the witnesses might have overseen the tryst the meeting between the lovers right sneaking out into the woods at night or whatever and you know it's what edmund morgan a famous yale historian said long ago these the puritans and their descendants were quite forthright about sex and, you know, would use words for sometimes the word penis, but, you know, the man's yard or the state of undress or, you know, so they they were quite frank and forthright. And of course, the one point we haven't perhaps made yet about Sarah's situation and trying to abort a, a pregnancy is that the woman is is trying to cover up what her neighbors would have seen as her the the first sin, which was having premarital sex. Mm-hmm. So even though it was widely accepted in some ways, it also still was uh, condemned morally, and you could get into trouble in the law, and you could get into trouble with your parents. And so her uh, language and other people's language will often indicate that on the rare occasions that we know that someone attempted to to have a, an abortion. They were really trying to cover up the original sin, which was seen as pregnancy, or in the case of working class women serving, and often women of color serving as servants in households, they they were rightfully afraid they would lose their position, 
if they became pregnant and had a child. And it's in those cases that sometimes resulted in infanticide prosecutions that we see juries off being surprisingly sympathetic to young women in those situations and looking for ways to find the young woman not guilty of a capital crime. And, and one of the issues is we often, they didn't know, we don't know if the child was still born and the mother had not actually deliberately killed or smothered her child, even though she was accused of that. Yeah. So I think infanticide prosecutions need to be considered alongside these rare abortion cases. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, who knew this would become so mm-hmm. relevant again, but I, I think that's the the sort of thing we might start to see again, although, of course, our, our medical science is better at now at distinguishing was a baby still born or not, but it seems to be increasing cases where they, you know, right. there's just a no, lot of this confusion. Miscarriage, can you get to the hospital, right? In latent mm-hmm. pregnancy, it's, it's going to be a huge ethical issue um, for young women and for medical providers. And of course, in the 18th century, there weren't paternity tests, right? So right. that's another issue is that men could often just deny, I'm not the father, and accuse the young woman of keeping company, as they would have said with other men. And so she often bore the brunt of the moral disapproval. But the one thing my research did show that I think is important to say is that is that parents did not throw out daughters who became pregnant mm-hmm. and didn't didn't marry. They usually supported the the woman and her child, and she often married a few years later, and her husband informally adopted the the child. So then let's sort of wrap up this case with kind of what what happened. So you said in the end, it was only the doctor who was actually indicted uh, with a crime. What, what was the outcome then? Yes. Yeah, so the outcome is it went to a jury and they found him guilty and they prescribed a punishment um, like sort of shaming and whipping publicly at the whipping post. But by then, John Hallowell, who's a kind of wily character, had fled to the neighboring colony of Rhode Island. And he took up residence in Rhode Island and stayed there, um, I think, as a medical practitioner and apothecary for the rest of his life. He married uh, a woman. It looked like he was already kind of courting that woman because this part of Connecticut is not far from the Rhode Island border. Um, So he escapes punishment is what I'm telling you, Kelly. But the trial did come to an end and and ended in in a guilty verdict. But, you know, would lawyers and prosecutors in other state colonies and states later on have known about this? Not necessarily, because none of these before the 1790s, there were not court reporters. Uh, Mm. There were not published accounts or, or records of either judicial opinions or or the results of criminal trials. So not nece- it would have spread only by word of mouth. So it was probably pretty easy to <laughs> escape mm-hmm. prosecution for such things. Uh, and of course, there's no national medical board that's licensing doctors mm-hmm. either. So that, right. that's the sort of thing that, that might catch up with someone now that, that wouldn't have done. And uh, of course, the the outcome for Amasa, so the mm. the father of the baby, is that he lives his life, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. I mean, I do make that point at the end, which is that he marries and has children and is esteemed in the community of Pomfret, which seems kind of extraordinary to me. And also, 
that in other generations, there are relationships between descendants of Sarah and the, the Sessions family. Now, maybe that's not to be unexpected because because they were prominent families in a small, you know, somewhat rural town. And But as I say uh, in the article, I, well, I would love to know how women of Pomfret talked about this when it was happening or after Sarah died. Yeah. And if there was a sort of gender division, because one of the notable things about the 18th century is that there was a strong double standard about women and men receiving criticism mm -hmm. and being at risk legally for sexual misdeeds, right? So, so there is an emerging, I think, sense of male sexual entitlement, white propertyed men, whereas women continue in some ways to to be much more vulnerable to slurs on their sexual reputations. Yeah. So I will put links in the show notes, both to the website, the Taking the Trade website, and then also if people have JSTOR access, they can, they can access the original article from 1991. Nina, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's a, a great article. People should read it. And the website is just fantastic. Uh, so I, I really, really appreciate the, the time that was put into that. So thank you. And I'm very happy if people want to contact me at my email address at yukon.edu. If they want to follow up or ask questions, I'm always glad to communicate with people. And thank you, Kelly. This was great fun. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. Bye.